0: Twenty one CL radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life Podcast with host
1: Andy Vass.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. Uh, today's guest uh, I've been in contact with. We've never met in person, but we've uh, over, I guess, over the past three or four months, we've connected on social media and we've had uh, some conversations over direct messaging on Twitter and and uh, messaging on Facebook just to kind of get to know each other's work. Um, but uh, today I have with me Dr. Martha James Hassan uh, from Baltimore, um, for those of you that don't know Martha, she was a keynote speaker at this year's uh, 2016 uh, National PE Institute in Asheville, North Carolina. A great conference run by Artie Kamiya. Um Yeah, Martha, I spoke uh, in the 2015 uh, conference. Uh, what a what a great experience! Did you enjoy that experience?
1: It was unbelievable. Uh, clearly, clearly a unique conference in its. Both focus on on high quality instructional strategies, ideas, technology, but also the incredible work that Artie and his team go through to make sure that people are are connecting and really networking at the event. It's it's, it's pretty spectacular.
0: Yeah, each year it's taken off more and more on social media. Artie's embraced social media uh, more and more every year, and as a result, uh, I think he's extending his reach, but in particular the reach of of the conference itself. I know that there were people from, uh, I think, Europe, China, uh, a number of countries outside of North America and and that's growing every year and that's, you know, it speaks volumes for Artie's commitment to um, really uh, creating and designing a great physical education conference. I agree. Yeah. So why don't you give people um, a little, so for those listeners that aren't familiar with you, why don't you just give a little backstory into, um, you know, what you currently do, and then we'll dig a little more into that as the podcast goes on.
1: Sure. Thanks. Um, First off, Andy, thank you so much for inviting me to come on, Run Your Life. Uh, It's great through social media, you sort of get to professionally livestock people, And then when you get to actually interact with them, um, that's pretty phenomenal. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, Currently, my job title is I'm an assistant professor at Morgan State University, which is an HBCU, so a historically black college and university here in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, We are actually getting ready to celebrate our sesquicentennial. So looking Mm -hmm. forward to what that means. Um, And it's interesting to be at an HBCU situated in their sesquicentennial Um, celebration amidst the current climate that we have going on around ethnicity and social justice and race in this country. Uh, Outside of that job, where in in that job, I teach uh, predominantly uh, physical education, teacher education, uh, and also work some with the General College of Education and Urban Studies. Outside of that role, I also have a very significant volunteer job in that I was appointed by Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake and Governor Martin O'Malley to serve as a commissioner on the Baltimore City Board of School Commissioners. So most of you know that as your your local school board. Um, In Baltimore City, we have about 80,000 students. We manage a $1.2 billion budget. Uh, several hundred school buildings, um, and all of the complexities, uh, opportunities, joys, and sorrows that are wrapped up in that for running a major urban setting. Uh, so that is a 100% volunteer job that I do uh, in my free time on the side.
0: And, and that takes up, you know, a volunteer job, but, um, you know, we were talking pre-show, and that, that takes up quite a bit of your extra time.
1: Correct. Yeah, it's about 15 to 30 hours a week of actual uh, meeting, meeting or meeting prep time. in On the board, I serve as the chair of the policy committee, I'm on the operations committee, I was the chair of the budget ad hoc task force, I was on the charter ad hoc task force, and I was on the teaching and learning committee. So each of those meetings has about two to three hours of meeting time face to face per month, but it also involves all the prep work, uh, follow up work, And then um, there's the community events, appearances, um, stakeholder meetings, things like that, that all all add up to a great amount of time spent on the budgetary, quasi-judicial, and superintendent support work of the district.
0: Yeah, so you're working mostly, I think what you're saying is you're working directly with superintendents, and, and then they obviously, you know, are in charge of a number of schools underneath them, Right.
1: Correct. One of the biggest challenges actually for me in the role as commissioner is staying out of the day-to-day running of the business. Um, As a school board, our job is to handle governance and policy uh, and and, uh, budgetary oversight. So we're not supposed to be engaged in how is teaching happening, in what is teaching happening, in how how are students being transported, those sort of the the weeds of, of doing business as a school. Um, and for me, it's really hard to stay out of that because I really want to be involved in implementation. Uh, for example, if our superintendent asks us to approve a $500,000 allocation for a reading intervention program, I I struggle with, with just saying, yeah, that makes sense. The, all of the literature says this is a, a program that works uh, when I don't know if it actually works with kids in schools, when I don't know if how teachers are perceiving when I don't know how families are perceiving it. Um, But in our role trying to stay at that 10,000-foot view, I have to go by the information that's given me um, and either approve or deny without consideration of implementation. So it's it's a very strange place to be in when you're as vested in in teaching and learning as I am.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're looking at it from multiple different perspectives as well, right? Um, Correct. Okay, that's perfect. So I was, when I was looking at some of your work on, uh, online, uh, I, I found a quote of yours uh, that you were talking about. Um, you were talking about your work and your current role with the uh, Baltimore city board of school commissioners. And you said that working with kids and helping them succeed feeds your soul and gets you out of bed in the morning. And I think what you're describing, the work that you do, um, for the board, I can understand why you want to reach in there and change teaching, you know, but that's not really your role. You're looking at the bigger picture, right?
1: Correct. Um, I but sp- in my 21 years or yeah, 21 years in K-12. I had always felt sort of powerless, whether I was the teacher, whether I was the uh, administrator in the building, whether I was a district administrator, it always felt like somebody else could make changes. Um, and these changes that, we feel, you know, when we sit in the trenches, we may disagree about our approaches to them, but everybody understands that the change needs to happen. Um, and I always felt like somebody else has the power to make that change. Somebody else has the power to do that. And that as soon as I left K 12 and transitioned to higher education, one of the things that I wanted to do was come invested in that group of people who I, at least at that point in my life perceived, could make those changes.
0: Yeah and what and that was
1: school board members.
0: A, yeah, exactly, right? And uh, on a broad scale and how um I guess how can you impact them to create the change that you see is most relevant with young people?
1: Some of it to me what I've seen um in sort of the lived role of what the job is versus the fantasy role of what I thought the job might be. Um and, and just to clarify that is in that I have far less power and ability to make change than I thought I would. So the lived reality um, is, is a bit of coming to terms with that um, and figuring out where, where do I have sort of those fissures that I can insert a wedge and make change. One of the things that I found is that those, f- those fissures occur predominantly in my ability to have access to educate the other board members um to really as we go into making decisions about teaching and learning, whether it's the superintendent, the chief academic officers, the chief financial officers, um, or or my colleagues on the board, that part of the way that I am, am manifesting my desire to make changes in education is by teaching them what education can and could look like from my perspective. Um, specifically if we look at the idea of mindfulness or uh, trauma and, and, and I forget, I just blank on the word. It's not trauma-informed care anymore. There's a, a new and more accurate label for it. But um, maybe tra- trauma-centric or... Right. Anyway, I, I'll get it and get it to you. But looking at this idea of understanding the trauma that children are going through and that if we don't address some of those effective domain pieces, we're not going to be able to get to the, the cognitive academic skills. Um and so, as a board member, I have I have the luxury of being in proximity to people to continually remind them that trauma informed care in schools does not need to be an add on service. It does not need to. Certainly, do we benefit by bringing in yoga calm or other you know child centered yoga pieces? Do we benefit from bringing in meditation and creating spaces for um, for sort of that? Um, emotional resilience development. We absolutely do, but it should be in addition to, it should, you know, in the in the supplement, not supplant category, um, all the trauma-informed pieces, mindfulness pieces, should supplement curriculum. They should supplement instruction. They should supplement what's happening in schools so that the, the academic content and the rigor of classes have that sort of mindfulness piece embedded into them meditation shouldn't be a oh we got to drop everything and meditate uh, we should be become cognizant of the habits of mind of breath and thought and reflection throughout everything we do in a teaching day Does that
0: yeah, make sense yeah totally that's a great sort point of. and I think that idea of social uh, emotional intelligence and and developing uh, I guess those areas uh, are key and and um, I, you, you know the work that my wife and I do is uh, We we work on kind of spreading the ideas of mindfulness, and I know my wife does a lot of that in the classroom. And I guess the biggest resistance that she meets is exactly what you just described: is that teachers believe that it's it's more work piled on their plate, but really it should be interwoven into the fabric of everything that they do um, in their in the teaching and learning that happens in the classroom. So, you know, I do uh, some of the stuff I present in physical education also deals heavily with that social emotional intelligence and, and working to intrinsically motivate uh, young people to choose um, ways that they can be physically active, you know? Um, But again, it goes, go ahead.
1: Oh yeah. So I was just to, to circle it back to the the role on the board and the work that I do um, by having that privilege of presence I'm able to make sure that message is reinforced um, and is reinforced for people that may not come at education from a physical activity or social-emotional engagement perspective. So I have the ear of the superintendent. I have the ear of the curriculum review board. I have my colleagues on the actual school board. And I, I serve as a gentle reminder of some of these things. Um, I did have get some criticism from one of my board colleagues um, in that constructive, loving way that criticism is often delivered. Um, yes, that was yeah. tongue-in-cheek full wholeheartedly. Yeah. Um, wholeheartedly. How I am that movement lady. And my retort to that was, yes, I absolutely care an incredibly large amount about health and physical education. But if you listen to all of my comments, I also care a great deal about the arts. And I care a great deal about The structures and um, mechanisms of schooling, why they hear me talk about social emotional learning, why they hear me talk about health and physical education, why they hear me talk about dance and theater arts so much more than the other topics that I think bear equal importance is because that narrative without my contribution is often silence. Yes. And so I'm the advocate for it. Not in exclusion or in exemption of other aspects of education.
0: Sorry, Martha, we just we just cut out there. Can you just repeat what you said in the last ten oh. seconds?
1: Oh, I just simply said that, that that it's not certainly not the only voice that needs to be brought to the forefront. Yeah, but because there's such a lack of discourse. Yeah. About the contributions of quality health and physical education, about the larger both academic and personal development aspects of theater, dance, visual, and music arts, um, that if somebody's not going to beat that drum very, very loudly, it's very easy in the pressure of high-stakes accountability to not hear that anymore and make fear-based decisions that are eventually, as we see, undermining our success with kids.
0: Yeah, my role this this year at the the new school, so I consulted last year and the last couple of years, my last couple of years of teaching, I was um, consulting a lot during my holiday time. Uh, I'd, I'd take off from school during holiday time and go do work at with different international schools. But my role this year is a pedagogical coach, so I'm working with the arts, uh, visual and performing arts. Um as well as uh, physical education so I'm, I'm really I'm an advocate for the arts as well and um, actually performing arts at the school that I'm currently at is an area in need of growth so we're, we're working on that and we're working on developing a more comprehensive arts program but yeah I'm a huge advocate of it and uh, not just the physical uh, and you know the physical education and health but but the arts in general always allows every single student to find a niche if they have mm-hmm. teachers that are passionate about delivering this subject area.
1: Exactly, and it, it goes directly, speaks directly to academic achievements as far as alpha numeric literacy. I mean, okay. all, all of the research is there. Uh, but one piece that I think teachers often forget and administrators are often unaware of is that it is also those same things, it's, it's physical education, it's performing arts, that are your community outreach engagement.
0: Yeah,
1: You engage through athletics, you engage through band concerts, you engage through field days, and we have no problem getting parents to show up for those events. And so when we talk about how do we get more, more parental engagement, how do we get more community involvement, well, how about we stop cutting the programs or minimizing the programs that actually do that as an organic part of their existence.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. How has, you know, your work outside of physical education, um, so with the Baltimore City Board of School Commissioners and your work, I guess in particular your work outside of physical education, how has that changed the way that you you kind of mentor and um, teach pre-service teachers at the university?
1: Um, I would say that one of the most profound sort of aha moments I had that really shifted how I teach uh, my pre-professional teachers is happened when I was working on the implementation plan for the Common Core State Standards. So I spent a full year uh, funded by a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation grant working K-12 or pre-K-12 across all content areas to figure out how should we implement the Common Core. So this was 2010 2011 prior to any park assessments uh so the initial rollout time and i was in a professional development training session with a group of uh, cte career tech education teachers most of whom were the what you would think of as the traditional industrial arts teacher you you know i had in the 70s and 80s so you know these big guys overalls working their saws doing their thing and they pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and resisted this idea of embedding academic literacy in their work. And how would it do anything except take away from time Yeah. until I was able to frame it around their content standards and their safety standards, because just as similarly to how physical educators are evaluated by principles, you know, if, Nobody's getting hurt and a parent's not complaining, it must be okay. Yeah. What I found was these these um, other encore area content teachers, specifically these CTE teachers, had much the same administrative support. As long as the kid wasn't slicing off a finger in a sl- in a saw, and every now and then they, they made a cute spice rack or cutting board or you know, whatever we make now that we can't make ashtrays. Yeah. Um, that they they were then being effective teachers. Well, once I got these guys on board to uh, the infusion of academic content around literacy could help with their safety ratio ratings and they, they could be using um, best practices around inquiry in figuring out safeguards and materials management kind of strategies. They were so on board and then I was able to help direct them from there to how they could embed textual understanding and knowledge to help advance their content centers. They became my biggest advocates. So while all of that content might be lost in this metaphor, Um, what it taught me for working with undergraduate students is really that you absolutely, you know, we organically know it with K-12, but you think, well, this is teacher prep, it's vocational. They must know how to, you know, deconstruct a standard and build priority standards and benchmarks and their outcomes and then their objectives in their three learning domains and blah, blah, blah. That's very sort of perfunctory and formulaic. Yeah. What my experience with those CTE teachers taught me was you absolutely have to make it meaningful to them and you have to figure out wherever they are and start there in order to bring them anywhere or the rest of it is just words.
0: Yeah, I think that's where physical education teachers as well um, have a lot of fear when it comes to any kind of integration with the, the rest of the curriculum. They feel that PE is being watered down uh, and that they're not literacy teachers, they're physical education teachers. And, uh, a lot of the work that I do is with, um, you know, giving teachers, helping teachers create more authentic connections with what's happening in the classroom, but not at the expense of physical activity. M- more to highlight the, the, I guess, the, the big ideas that transcend the curriculum uh, those life skills that, that apply across the curriculum. Uh, and there's some resistance because again, um, the, the understanding is that their subject area is being watered down, which is what you described until until you help them understand that authentic connections really make a difference. And then it inspired them to look at their subject area through a different lens.
1: Correct. I think you brought up a really interesting point too, as well. Um, and it was the point that I focused on in, when I did the when I did California Afort's keynote in 2014 was this idea of the level of fear that teachers have. Uh, you know, when we go on, Doug Reeves you know, has said that teachers fear change more than they fear death itself. Yeah. Uh, and so we have all these survival mechanisms built in, whether we define that change that we're resistant to as being we don't want to give up the physical activity by infusing content. Or any of the other equally well expressed sentiments that really boil down to I'm really scared as a teacher. I'm, I'm scared of my content. I'm scared of my students. I'm scared of losing control. I'm scared of my own professional career boredom. I'm scared of being evaluated um, or judged poorly by my administrators or my PLC or my PLN or my colleagues. Um, I'm scared that it's going to cost me to work too hard. I'm scared that it's going to flop as a lesson or a unit. And I think if we can get to a point where we can be so empowered that fear does not drive us, but that we can temper that fear the way that we would if we sort of cross paths with a, with a wild animal that we would know, oh, it's a bear. I have to have some respect and some deference for that bear, but I do not need to be, um, immobilized by the presence of that bear.
0: Yeah. Another great point you make. And it's, um you know, if you had to kind of identify when you look at physical education, and health in particular, in 2016, and how it's kind of changed and evolved and morphed and moved back and forth, and there's different focuses on different models. But if you just looked at physical education in general, what do you think are some of the the biggest obstacles that hold physical education teachers back from greatness. And when I say greatness, I don't mean that they're master teachers. I just mean that they're delivering physical education in a way that's truly making a difference to young people and um, inspiring young people to to find their own niche, I guess, when it comes to physical activity. But what do you think are some of the biggest obstacles that exist nowadays for physical education teachers?
1: Um, I think there's internal and external obstacles that we face. And I think the biggest external obstacles, uh, and this is, I shared this recently with someone. So I, I apologize if people are hearing it 50 million times. Um, but the external obstacle that we face is in my role as board member. When I cross paths with people, you know, we're at a cocktail party or something like that. And someone says, well, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm a physical educator. Their response is, wow, that must be the greatest job ever. Or, oh my God, that was the most humiliating experience of my entire life. And the responses almost never vary from one of those two. The problem is that those two are the exact same answer. The person that says, oh my God, you have the greatest job ever, what they're saying is all you do is play games. Yeah, You run around, you don't really have to work. Your life is leisure. Yeah. The person who says, oh my God, that was the most horrific experience of my life had a very, very impactful social, emotional experience related to their own ability, their efficacy, and their, uh, their intention around health and wellness. Meaning you didn't work. You were only being in leisure activities. You were just playing games. So when we look at funders, we look at school board members, we look at philanthropic organizations, we look at for-profit industries, they're being now run and led by people that have one of these two seemingly diametrically opposed, but actually completely congruent philosophies on what physical education is. And that's that we don't work. We're leisure time engaged and um, that we're not protecting the health and wellness of our students. So I think we have that external piece to fight. Um, I think there's a even bigger sort of mountaintop view that we have as a, as a challenge to health and physical education in schools. Uh, and that is that we have a civilization, long love of people who don't have to do physical labor. We really value and exalt people who have separated themselves from their bodies. We like intellectual property. We Mm -hmm. value intellectual property. Uh, if you look at, at jobs, people do coming out of college and initial, initial salaries, People well, that are coming out of college in engineering, in business, um their starting salaries, you know, are in the fifty to eighty thousand dollar range. Well, you can be a 10-year teacher and not be there. Yeah. Um, or you can be a twenty-year faculty member and not be there. So we have so worked and said that you're not a good person if you're connected to physical labor, you're not a smart person if you engage with your body, that we've got this sort of meta-narrative going on that says physical exertion and attention to wellness for other things than aesthetics, it isn't valued. Uh, you know, the kid that's mouthing off in class, the teacher, you know, says, well, if you don't you know, do your spelling work, you're going to be a ditch digger.
0: Yeah.
1: What they're really saying there is that if you don't, if you're not worthy of intellectual pursuits, then you're relegated to physical. So I think we have that to fight. Then on the very at home level, we need to work with courageous conversations with one another. Um, You know, Gary Singleton talks in his work about courageous conversations around race and ethnicity. Well, if we're not willing to have courageous conversations around job performance, even if we disagree with, is it sport ed? Is it TGFU? Is it, you know, whatever model we're using, is it fitness based? We can have that disagreement, but we need to also have that disagreement on not just what we're teaching, But how how we're teaching it, how we're organizing our classrooms for understanding what the hidden messages are that kids are getting from engaging in our classrooms. Um, And we need to be willing to to work with our administrators to say that is actually not an exceptional lesson that you just saw. And here's why it's not an exceptional lesson. But I want you to be able to effectively evaluate me. So let me teach you what an effective lesson would look like. Um, let me be courageous enough to be vulnerable with my own security in this field to say to the person that shares an office with me, you really actually do need to do lesson plans more than an hour in advance. You really actually can't just roll out the ball. Uh, you really actually are a role model for physical activity and wellness. So is that the best thing to eat on campus? You know, And that sounds really judgy. But if we could get to a place where it is as normal as if a doctor went into surgery without washing their hands, somebody would say something. Oh, for sure. That then we could possibly be able to move the needle on those external lenses that are both the the community reinforcers who have these perceptions about physical education and then the giant meta-narrative that goes on that really asks kids to disconnect from their bodies, which in my you know, my personal opinion is central to what we're seeing in the lack of academic achievement in schools is we've told kids, you need to be physically present, but not present in your physicality.
0: Yeah. And and again, I, I think of, you know, you mentioned the models the fitness models or TGFU model or, or sport ed. And we talked about this um, pre-show, but that idea that some teachers get really firmly entrenched in, in one type of model. And have you heard the fundamental movement podcast? Did, did you see that anywhere yet?
1: I have seen it. I haven't had a chance to watch it.
0: Yeah. or listen. So we recently, so it's myself, Dr. Dean Dudley, Dr. Aaron, uh, Beatley, uh, Nathan Horn and Joey fight, uh, sometimes joins us when he's, you know, Joey's quite busy with his, um, you know, with the work he's doing at his school, St. George's in Montreal. But, uh, we talked about different models and, and we all kind of agreed that, that, you know, it's impossible to say, you know, you're focusing on just one model because so many things are happening. But I guess I get, the more I look at social media, I, I see a lot of teachers posting stuff about fitness, fitness, fitness cards, fitness stations, you, you know, um, kids coming into the gym and doing multiple fitness stations and jumping jacks and push-ups and burpees. And sometimes it's being presented in a way that, Oh, the kids are so engaged. Um, but to be honest, I've gone to a lot of schools and I've seen these types of programs and there's a high level of disengagement there because mm-hmm. it's not being differentiated and it's being delivered, uh, with a very broad sweep of the brush, you know, the the fitness and fitness testing. But what is your general take on the role of fitness testing or kind of that idea of fitness in in PE?
1: Um, I think it's a really challenging one, but I think it's a question that we as a profession need to address um, and need to address in a really holistic way. Um, Fundamentally, if we think about fitness assessment we come in, kids take, you know, whether they're doing Fitnessgram or Presidents or, you know, a hybrid or something co-created in the buildings. Um, fundamentally, getting a fitness score, do students look at, sweet, I did 25 curl-ups, or do they look at it and say, oh, crap, I only did 25 curl-ups. And if our goal and our mission is, as wellness and physical activity specialists is to promote lifelong engagement with physical activity. Which one of those perceptions do we want kids to have? Sweet, I did twenty-five? Or oh crap, I only did twenty-five. If our next lesson is take your baseline data and set a goal, by extension then, what is the only perspective we have given our kids? Oh yeah. crap, I only did twenty five. Yeah, exactly. And so we're fundamentally telling them that there is something organically wrong with their bodies. There is something that probably needs some sort of product, whether it's deodorant or a razor or a sculpting tool or some sort of gym membership. But we're telling kids and we who oftentimes are their most adored teachers and we're their favorites and we're looking at them through our curriculum and giving them a message that they are not okay as they are. And I think that that is something that we're challenged because as a field, we want to sort of validify ourselves through our, you know, our our own testing metrics by being able to say that, you know, little Johnny, you know, ran 17 pacer lengths and now he ran 18 and that that's somehow our credit, um, which I think there's enough dissension amongst the ranks now that we can understand that that's mostly maturation and experience rather than actual fitness. Yeah. But if we want to hang our hat on fitness testing as why we're valid and relevant. Then we also have to accept that what we're telling kids is that in and of themselves, they're not valid and relevant.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, what, and
1: that becomes one of those courageous conversations that we really need to take on.
0: Yeah, grazi uh I guess two thousand fourteen, so I spoke in two thousand fifteen, you were this summer. Pangrasi spoke in two thousand and fourteen at the PE Institute, and he really uh got in people's uh space, mental space with that yeah. with a similar message.
1: He's pretty good at that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and he and, w-
1: and he's a model of physical fitness.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he's so I think coming from shape.
1: you know it's, to be able to be you know at that level of performance and ability is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, but is that where everyone needs to be in order to be well?
0: Yeah, and and you know I and, I, I think the teachers are are well intentioned, but it's again sometimes I guess the that holistic perspective isn't isn't considered. You know so. Um, and the reality is that once they start setting goals and they do this fitness testing, th- they don't get enough P.E. time to actually have P.E. make a difference in their level of fitness.
1: Correct. You know? And it's one variable amongst, you know, a palette of variables for young children um, that impacts their health and wellness.
0: Yeah. So what would be the, so, th- your biggest message to PE teachers when considering um, the theme of fitness?
1: To use it as a part of your curriculum. Um, If you're going to focus more on a fitness for life program, then actually really do that and look into what does that mean? Um, So often I see fitness for life happening as, well, we just do fitness games. And when you talk with Guy, you know, or talk with with the other school of thought people that that help really, really solidify the, the theoretical framework of fitness for life. You know, looking at what do you need to be physically fit to engage in golf? How do you need to be physically prepared in order to successfully engage in you know your your pickup basketball league, things like that? That that's a much more holistic conversation. Yeah, it's too easy to go, oh, we do fitness for life, so I do. Fitness gram and then we play fitness games and then we do fitness gram at the end and you go in and you analyze those fitness games they're playing and they're very low engagement and they're very low skill repetition and they're not positive, even social emotional experiences for most people. Um, So the one piece, the one solid piece I would say is I think there's a space for fitness testing. I think there's a space for fitness education, but I think it is a part of the picture, not the entire picture unless you were being incredibly intentional about teaching other things and illuminating or highlighting the links to fitness rather than saying that fitness is a precursor or how I actually think students are interpreting it is a roadblock to participation in physical activity.
0: Yeah. I I think of target games and, and uh, I was uh, working with, with some teachers and, and they had these target games courses set up and and then they were making their kids go as quickly as they could through the target gains because they were under pressure to keep the kids in the maximum heart rate zone for as long as possible. So target gain slows down the heart rate. So they had them speeding, right. <laughs> speeding up kind of like speed golf, right? Well, speed golf is not a reality. Very few people do speed golf. But anyway, so the goal was to go through the course as quickly as you can, um, keeping track of your score. Um being safe of course safety was stressed but it's contrary to the nature of target games which is quiet the mind and focus and slow your body down and and go through a certain routines if it's golf pre-shot routine really think you know so it's that idea you got contrary things happening you know you you really are sending the the wrong message to the kids to race through uh frisbee golf rather than think their way through it you know so again just
1: and you know people people will come back and push back on that and say that well you know the motor learning research says that you know if you have the secondary task analysis to prove your primary task is a secure skill and blah 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 and all that is great for learning theory but when it comes to actually hitting the target do you want the student to be successful Um, and, and what, how are we going to measure that? Or if your point is run as fast as you can across a first golf course, then just do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And focus on that alone. Yeah. 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 This might be a, a nice time to segue over. Um, I let you listen to an audio clip, um, from the Ted radio hour. Uh, so to give people some backstory, um, the Ted radio hour is a fantastic podcast. And I know Martha, you said that you also listen to it. Um, but that, uh, I, what I do is I will take clips from Ted radio hour and Ted radio hour, the host of the show guy, Raz gave me permission to take audio clips to embed in my own podcast and have my guests listen to them. And I get my guests to kind of, uh, just share any thoughts or feelings or ideas that resonate with them in regards to the clip. So depending on the guest, the clip uh, will change. So I just want to give a shout out to Ted Radio Hour for, for um, giving me permission to use the audio clips. But um, the audio clip you listened to in the pre-show was uh, all about shifting time and to what extent we are entrenched within certain mindsets as we get older and more experienced in life. So I'm going to have you listen to that clip again and to share kind of any initial thoughts, uh, big ideas that resonate with you. And, and I want you to kind of think about it through the lens of, of teaching and, and education and teachers sometimes getting entrenched in certain stances and mindsets and ways of thinking. So I'll play the audio clip. It's about 50 seconds. And then right away when it's done, you can just go into your your thoughts, okay? Okay. Okay. So here we go. transforms our preferences, it reshapes our values, it alters our personalities. We seem to appreciate this fact, but only in retrospect, only when we look backwards do we realize how much change happens in a decade. It's as if, for most of us, the present is a magic time, it's a watershed on the timeline, it's the moment at which we finally become ourselves. Human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. The person you are right now is as transient, as fleeting, and as temporary as all the people you've ever been. The one constant in our life is change. Yeah, I I love that clip. And and to me, it, it just embodies everything that's so critically important about being the best educators we can be is embracing change. But what are your initial thoughts?
1: Well, my first initial thought that came up when you played it for me prior to us being on on recording was a quote by Howard Zinn, Um, and he says, you can't stand still on a moving train. The problem is that we don't always know the train is moving. So just like we are unable to kinesthetically perceive the rotation of the earth or the revolution around the sun, uh, we also don't necessarily see the movement that's happening in our daily lives but that the train that we are on is moving and therefore we are as well. Um, so that sort of an initial thought is wrapped around this idea of being a lifelong learner and needing to continually uh, reflect on your situation, reflect on the world around you. How do, how do you fit in as a small piece of a large puzzle? Um, and how is that moving either in a direction of intentionality, or are you sort of being sort of bobbed along by the current? Um, the second piece that comes up for me on that one is that I realize that I think I've heard the whole hour before. yeah, uh, so that's always fun as a big giant Ted geek, yeah, um, that it when he goes on in that in that hour, if it's the hour that I'm re- remembering correctly, he talks about how people reflect on. The sort of perception of change in times of their life.
0: Yes, yes. So,
1: would you say you grew more between being eighteen and twenty-two? I, I love it. Or that your life changed more between forty and forty-five? Or, and what he what he says, or what his guests say throughout that that conversation, is that change is fairly consistent through our life, that it's happening at the same rate immediately that we reflect that it happened when we were sixteen, and I think that contextualizes this idea of of time as a force in our lives. And especially if you talk about time and intersect that with experiences as a force for either transformation or reformation, um, or if we're not attending to it for stagnation um, that right now, the same kinds of changes are happening for me as a middle-aged woman, as they were when I was an adolescent, as they will when I, when I'm elderly and so there really isn't a resting on our laurels there if there really is a constant need to be sort of you know in that athletic stance a constant need to be on our toes and ready to roll because we're rolling
0: yeah that's that's a great point and uh that brought up that memory of uh because i just listened to it again this week and uh, i went for a run and i i was listening to it and I just, uh, I I remembered now that you say that, the difference between how you think about your own level of change as a 20-year-old compared to a 30-year-old. And the, you know, in the research that he's done, yeah, that, that most people realize, oh, wow, I've actually really moved a lot in my thinking over the past few years, when traditionally I believed that I'm not going to change that much, you know? So it's that constant reminder. As you say, I love what you said about that we don't see the movement happening in our daily lives, but it's happening all the time. And those of us who are parents with kids and you hear people say, oh, my God, I can't believe where the years have gone, and now my son or daughter is graduating from high school and going to university, it's so true. You know, it's just constantly changing and uh, time literally flies, right?
1: Right. And that—that's I think that's an interesting way of, of sort of, Framing it because we so often do look at change as an external piece Society's changing my neighborhood changed my kid grew up Um, But to really sort of take that mirror and refocus it and be perceptive of the fact that change is also happening to you Whether you're choosing intentionally a growth mindset or whether you are choosing to resist changing As the world around you changes, which in itself then also creates a new sort of intricacy to the dance of your lived experience in your community or in your school, your job setting, your family.
0: Yeah. Um, How has your I I said that I was going to ask you this, but how has your call to action kind of changed? So being in education for 25 years now, um, what kind of drives you now as opposed to, say, 10 years ago?
1: So, um, when I, when you first asked me this, uh, what popped into my head was, I don't have a timeline. How cool would it be to build a timeline and put the, Hey, this is when I read that book and it, sh- and I can visually and, and sort of profoundly perceive a switch that happened then, or this is when I met that person. And as a sort of autobiographical tool, I think I'm going to start challenging people to create their professional timelines. That's a good. Point. Um, as a mentor tool for people that we're supporting um, as well as a reflection to the people that did mentor us. I think it'd be a very cool thing. So that's just side note. Yeah. We should start a timeline project. Love it. Um, yeah. But as far as my timeline and how I have sort of evolved, uh, I came into this field. Um, and especially when I realized that I had a passion and a gift for working um, in, within urban centers, centers uh, coming from a rural background. I came into it much like many of my colleagues who are sort of being this imperfect ally right now. I came in with this deficit perspective of I single-handedly was going to save the world. Yeah. Um, and I was going to start, you know, each one reach one. It matters to this child and that starfish and, and all of those things that are these beautiful stories that we buy into. So I really came into education with that perspective. Um, I was quickly disavowed of that uh, and realized that, that, uh, was not going to happen, especially if I was going to save my own my own self along the way. Um, but the next, you know, the biggest shift then I really started to focus on this idea of kinesthetic academics coming from a, a physically privileged background to how could I help kids uh, be able to grasp and and understand the academic knowledge they needed to be to be teachers. And so I started surrounding myself with people that were experts in the field and sort of reading books and and getting better and better at it um, until I became sort of more of a master in that respect myself. Um, And then people asked me, um, you know, so, so you've got this, this academic piece and you're all about interdisciplinary and academic infusion and doing that from both perspectives, from the, from being the classroom teacher, integrating movement, uh, integrating health concepts to being the physical or health educator, integrating more academic, content from outside of our area Um, but then I moved into a social justice realm and I can't point to that point on the timeline other than I was engaged with living and working and advocating on behalf of my students who were predominantly from underrepresented populations um, as far as as far as privilege and oppression, uh, overrepresented and oppression, underrepresented in privilege. And so I became very invested in, in that work of what it was to be a white ally and a teacher in that scenario. And then I had a really interesting experience where I partnered with NASA. And I went uh, up in the Vomit Comet and did some experiments in microgravity. And one of my professors at the time was working on my on my master's, or no, on my doctorate at that time, said, you know, well, why are you doing this NASA stuff that's not connected to your through line? That's not connected to, you have this academic background and then you have this social justice background and, and now you're playing in microgravity with STEM. And I had to at that point, and this would be circling back to why I think the timeline project is important for people. I had to be able to articulate my professional through line for why did... I want to serve in urban centers. Why did I focus on kinesthetic academics? Why was social justice important? And now why was this STEM thing important? So I really had to reflect on what was in common. So I looked at the kite I was flying, and I traced back the sort of the string of that kite until it was in my grasp and realized that this NASA project was about imagining another reality. So I've got kids' science experiments, and I'm taking them into microgravity. If ever there was another reality that would be nearly impossible for students to envision or imagine, it would be a world without gravity. Gravity affects literally everything. So if I could work with my kids on science experiments to be able to, on a very concrete way, conceive of another reality, then maybe we could conceive of another reality where they were powerful in their own skin, another reality where they were academically successful because of their bodies, rather than having to disconnect from their bodies to be academically successful. So it was in that experience, in my doctoral program that I found the tail of my kite, that through line, that string that comes back to my hands that I hold every day that also keeps my kite in the air. Uh, And that's looking critically at what is, what isn't happening in schools, what is being voiced and what isn't being voiced. And how can you put voice to the voiceless, empower the unempowered, and make things better for kids everywhere? And that sounds really flowery, but that's become my through line. And that, that shifts and changes. That's how I, five years ago, was the common core lady is how I was introduced. Yeah. Now I'm being introduced as a social justice ally. Um, it's the same thing. It's two sides of, of the same coin that's a multifaceted form rolling around in space.
0: But it's that idea. And I I think I'm drawing some very uh, strong parallels between kind of my philosophy over the past few years and that idea. When you say articulate uh, your through line and, you know, doing your work with NASA and kind of exploring that, that area, you're, I think the very best educators are the ones that extract meaning from everything that happens in their life and find genuine transference to student learning you know Um, exactly yeah and and that is something that so many teachers push back against and don't understand and and it's all like oh no you have to have deep content knowledge of your own subject area that's most important and I agree that's really important But it's also looking outside of your industry and looking outside the box of what you're comfortable with and learning as much as you can. And there's, there's something in, in the common everyday experience, but something in, in everything we read, everything we write, everything we see, every single person we meet can teach us something that is valuable to our own growth and development and ultimately valuable to the growth and learning uh, the students that we teach.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you know the way schools are organized right now sets us up for a false narrative of disconnection. You know, we have math from 9 to 10 and then we have social studies from 10 to 11. So from a very early age we are taught to not make those connections. But I think that if we are going to be quality educators as humans, we're going to be successful people. Um, and successful health and wellness professionals, we have to start seeing those connections, how it's all a big giant mishmash of of interconnectedness.
0: Yeah. I had uh, an experience my wife had, um, a few years ago, she was applying for profession. Actually, she was going to present mindfulness at a PE conference and it had nothing to do with why I shouldn't say it didn't have anything to do, uh, to the person who was evaluating whether or not she should be given half a day leave to catch an early flight, um, the person making that decision evaluated her application to take a half day off to go present as having no connection whatsoever to the work she does with ESL students in the classroom, and she was, <laughs> and and to the point that she was told, "You're just an ES, ESL teacher." how is it that going to present mindfulness at a conference uh, in physical education has anything to do with the students that you're teaching? And she was so offended by that. She said, i hey, I'm not just an ESL teacher. I'm an educator, and that I am presenting something that I'm passionate about that I deliver to my students every single day. So again, it's that disconnect, and it only doesn't come from from teachers. It comes from administrators who just create this disconnect between genuine growth opportunities and pigeonholing what certain teachers are doing in certain parts of the school.
1: It it gets um, even more, and I'm going to use the air quotes, interesting when you start looking at that in higher education. Um, So I can't take off a day to go to a conference for my own learning. I can only take off time if I'm going to go present what I already know. Like that's what scholarship and scholarly endeavors are perceived to be in higher higher education. It's not my own professional development. It's me disseminating my information to others. That's valuable. Yes. Where are we supposed to get our own professional development? You know, so so coming from so long in K-12, there's a few things about higher ed that I'm just like, well, you really do need to go back to kindergarten because that is where we learned everything we needed to (laughs) know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, I guess we're going to move towards the the final part of the the show, but um, I always put my seats, uh, my guests in the hot seat to end the show. Uh oh! Yeah, and that's what they all say. Uh oh! <laughs> so, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you um, off the top of my head. I'm thinking right now. I have no questions written down in front of me. Um, I asked my my good friend, um, who's one of Canada's top uh, creative directors. She's kind of like the. Uh, Don Draper of Canada, you know, uh, from, Mad, okay. from Mad Men. So, <laughs> yeah, for men. Uh, yeah. So I threw out at the end of uh, my podcast with her. I said the greatest lesson that your mother or father ever taught you that kind of you bring to your work. So there's the question.
1: Oh,
0: wow. And it can be any, um. it can be anything. It can be what they didn't teach you, but it can just, there's just the, the greatest lesson learned. From your parents that you can apply. Take your time.
1: So, yeah, that's that's phenomenal. Um, and along with my timeline, that's one I'm going to develop out over time. Um, my parents had a profound impact, as as all you know, parents probably should or do, um, but on my life and on who I am. Uh, my father was a professor of physical education. Oh wow! Cool. And is an NCAA and NAIA hall of fame coach. Um, so certainly had a, a profound impact on me there. My mother was one of the very, very few people in her cohort who went to college, who had a degree in a career outside of her husband's. Um, when you're a professor in higher ed at that, you know, when I was growing up, there were the, the faculty women's meetings, which were really cocktail parties that started at like one. And that was the extent of, of what faculty women at that time were predominantly expected to do. Um, so seeing my mother fight sort of you know, societal expectations of a woman of her social status, the fact that she was a nurse and she, and she did go to work and she did come home dirty and tired and all of those things were very, very different for her cohort. Um, so I learned a lot about resilience from her. I learned a lot about, um, generally just not giving a crap, um, about what people think about you. If it's the right thing to do for you and your family, and it's the right thing to do for your community, then that's what you do. Um, she lacked a few social graces around that. Uh, but that I hope I also have learned a few things. Um, my father had, a list of Byronisms that when we get together as siblings, we sometimes bounce back and forth. Um, there's sort of three that pop into my head right now, and, and I haven't rehearsed this, so in, in absolutely no particular order, he used to say, and it was so painful. Um, he had this way of really like finding your Achilles' heel and slicing into it. <laughs> so in all honesty, one of the things that that he w- would say to me was, eh, "It's good enough for who I'm doing it for." So if he came over to like help lay brick in the driveway or He'll put up some sheetrock and it would be completely crooked and sideways, and he'd walk away from it and say, It's good enough for who I'm doing it for. <laughs> and at the time, I was like, You know that that means me. That means you don't value me. And he's like, Do you? What it forced me to do was find this core of I am okay regardless of the shit that gets said around me. <laughs> uh, and so, well, I hated it at the time, I have some love for it now. Second piece that he said to me was the smallest drop of water will wear away the largest stone given enough time.
0: Wow, that's a good one.
1: And he knew, he knew I was a tsunami. He knew I wanted, this is wrong. We should just blow it all up and start over. Um, But from the time I was very, very young, slow, just, just keep dripping, baby, just keep dripping. Um, And I think that that's, that's been a lesson that has served me very well. Um, I certainly have gotten better at it over time. I was not a uh, very politically finesseful when I first started trying to flood the waters. Um, but now I drip better still working through process. Uh, the other part to me, um, again, about my father that that I still am, am wrestling with in its profundity when I decided I was ready to go back and work on my doctorate. I asked him if he, I said, I found, I found a program, um, I'm going to be able to go. I've got it all straightened out. if it comes to the point where I can't make my gas or electric bill some month, can I count on you for a safety net? He said, absolutely not. If you're going to do something so foolish as to work on your doctorate, you're on your own. (laughs) And again, my father had this great way of backhanding you, right in the reality. Um, And I I was really angry about that for a while what I realize now that I'm in higher ed and how fixed mindset higher ed is, um, and how higher ed has trouble seeing the through line of the kite that is my life that floats me, that buoys me, that, that piece that does keep me awake at night, figuring out how the world can be better for kids. And is the first thing to pop me out of bed in the morning. Um, he might've been onto something. Uh, I might've been not quite ready to drip that small drop in higher ed. Yeah. Uh, and so I try to, try to look at all of my decisions and my actions sort of through that, that those lenses that my parents provided me about, you know, just doing the work that needs to be done and working, you know, steadfastly at it on behalf of my family, my community of understanding that it needs to be that gentle push and not that onslaught. And then going, you know what, this might not be the best decision for me, or this might be the best decision for me. And I'm not going to take somebody else's advice because I need to figure out my own path. So those, you know, little glimpses, but my parents have been very, very profound in my life, um, and I miss them terribly.
0: That is amazing that you were able to pull that out from your memory banks when I threw (laughs) the question out. Those are three, you know, I mean, aside from your mom, I mean, your mom obviously taught you a lot, um, but, you know, it sounds like your dad was a thought provoker for sure. And, um, you know, three valuable things that might have pissed you off at the time, but you see great meaning behind it. I think with, um, I shared this with my friend in Canada cause she threw it back. at me and she said, what about you? And I wasn't ready for it because <laughs> I was asking the question, <laughs> but I said that, um, my father was a very introverted man. He was an architect and he had what he called the drafting room, right? So he would go and he would do his drafting and his architecture work and he would lock himself away in there. Then he would come down and have like a beer and a whiskey and watch TV at night. And, um, he never said much, you know, and he would, I played American football through high school and in university, and he never missed one of my games ever. He went to every single road wow. game in university. He would drive hours to go see me play. Uh, even when I wasn't starting and I sat the bench, he would still be at every single game and he would disappear right after the game. So if I had a great game, I would want to run to him and talk to him about the game but he was already gone. And as, you know, I my wife and I moved away from Canada in 96 and you know, we just picked up and moved and we created this life uh, abroad and we had two beautiful boys and and it's not that he never took any interest in them but he never reached out to us to call us or to email us. We always had to contact him and my sister had the same issues with him. So my sister and I tried to justify and come up with our own understanding of why he was the way he was. And the story we created was, he must be a lonely old man. You know, and it's not that he wasn't (laughs) loving at all. Like we would call him and he would say, I love you. And he would be more than happy to talk, but he never reached out. If we invited him to come and see us when we were back in Canada, he would come and see us. So we, both my sister and I, got really upset with and we're like, how can you live like that? My parents were divorced, so he lived alone. And I'm like, how can you live like that? You know, you must be just so lonely. Um, So anyways, I get this, you know, terrible news. Uh, It's like seven years ago now that suddenly he was retaining water and he was in the hospital and I didn't know anything that was going on. I was in Cambodia at the time working and I called my mom. My mom and my dad were, were really good friends, even though they were divorced, and my mom didn't know anything. She just knew that he was in the hospital. And, um, I called my aunt who lived in the same city as him and she was on her cell phone going into the hospital and he's, and she said, Your, your father has liver cancer. He's going to die within 48 hours. And my dad never Ouch. told anybody. He never told anybody. Even her. She, she literally found out four days before he was hospitalized because he hit it. So she, says call back in a few minutes i you know i get on the phone with my dad and and i talk to him for the last time and he tells me that he loves me and he's so proud of everything that i've done and i was like dad i'm i'm on the plane tomorrow i will be there i will be there he died four hours before i landed so so i had to go and say goodbye to him and they they held on to him the before cremating so that i could you know see him and then my sister and i have to go to his apartment and we have to, like, begin to figure out how we're going to ship up all or, you know, pack up all his stuff. And and then we start going through his apartment, and there's boxes of stuff, right? And we start looking through the stuff, and, and it's just boxes of journals. And then I pull out all of these journals, and I see that he listened to every single Toronto Blue Jay game on the radio for the past 15 years and kept every kept every statistic he he had all of these journals for like he was into nasa and space he had all of these handwritten journals about um the shuttle x uh all the times the shuttle went into space he had all of these journals about you know almost every single movie that he loved growing up and i realized and he taught himself how to play piano when he was 75 years old and then i realized oh my god he was not a lonely old man. He he was a lifelong learner. He was content mm-hmm. and happy in his own skin and learning something every day. So the most valuable lesson that I learned wasn't something that he actually taught me. It was that I assumed something terribly wrong about him. Right. And we do that in life. And I, I, I thought to myself, I'm never going to make assumptions about people anymore. I'm going to learn about them. I'm going to, not that I didn't before, but I'm going to learn even more about people and understand their perspectives and, and what makes them who they are and not assume anything. So I guess it's my greatest lesson, but it's not what he taught me, but I learned about in his through his death, you know?
1: That's it pulls it back to something that you said earlier. And I think it makes a, a nice sort of bow on the, on this package is that that precondition that, that deciding that you're intentionally not going to make, you know, overarching judgments about someone's reality makes it much easier for the piece you mentioned earlier with that. You're intentionally learning from every person and every situation in which you engage Yeah. so that, you know, you're by, by not judging, then you have created the condition whereby you can be open to learning the lessons, you know, whatever they are, they've been put in your path for a reason. Um, you know, or if you've subscribed to that sort of spiritual perception, or if it's happenstance, either way, if you weren't open to hearing it, you wouldn't be able to learn it. So those two pieces for me and listening to you in this very you know, brief time, I've gotten to know you, um, seem like they are sort of preconditioned hand in hand, one to another.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I really appreciate, it. I'm glad that we could finally, um, do the podcast and, uh, it was great kind of hearing about your, your life's work. And, and I look forward to, to being in touch with you and where can people find you on Twitter?
1: Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dr. James Hassan. So it's at D R J A M E S M E S. H A S S A N, Hank, Adam, Sam, Sam, Adam, Nancy. So at Dr. James Hassan on Twitter. Um, I also have an email that's connected through there. And if people want to reach out via email, that is M as in Mary James Hassan at gmail.com. So M J A M E S H A S S A N at gmail.
0: Okay. And do you have a blog?
1: I don't. Um, yeah. I, 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 it, it's one of those things that's on that you know you really should if you're a good person, um, <laughs> but I'm just not the good of a person.
0: <laughs> and it's a hell of a lot of work. Be, a, a, it, aside it was, aside from,
1: I'm trying to get yeah. tenure. I'm trying to you know yeah. change the world.
0: Yeah. Aside <laughs> aside from the work, all the work that you're doing, it would be uh, it's just an, another thing to throw on. But um, it would be uh, great for people to. I know you you have quite a few followers right now from the field, but it would be great for people to connect with you. And, uh, so at, at LinkedIn, are you on LinkedIn or any other place where I people- am
1: on LinkedIn. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. At Martha, Martha James is
0: on. Okay, great. So, uh, thanks again, this podcast. I'll, I'll, I'm striving to get this podcast out within a week's time. So when I do, I'll put it on, uh, I'll send you the, the link and put it on Twitter as well. So, um, thank you for your time. Just stay on the line. I'm going to stop the recording. Um, And then we'll just uh, do a quick debrief, okay? Sounds perfect. Okay. So everybody, thank you for listening uh, to my episode with uh, Dr. Martha James Hassan. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassman. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.